As I said earlier, Jonathan Clark's here with us today as our guest preacher. Jonathan grew up in the area, and we are glad that God has brought him back home to minister to the students at UCCS. I'm sure he may have more to say about his ministry with RUF or Reformed University Fellowship. That's the PCA's college ministry, but the main thing he's here to do today is the same thing he does with those students on a regular basis, bringing the word of God to us for our good, for God's glory. So, Jonathan, thank you for being here. Thanks for bringing God's word to us. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. As uh, Pastor Matt said, my name is Jonathan. Uh, I'm married to my wife, Caroline. Uh, she is worshiping with our little girl downtown. We have a four-year-old little girl named Phoebe and then another one on the way. Uh, she, she, my wife is expecting in August. Uh, so uh, you can pray that she would uh, come, come well to girl. So we're excited for that. Uh, like, like Matt said, I grew up here, I actually grew up in Black Forest, so a little bit of bona fides. I remember when Forest Gate was the only building within eyesight. I remember coming here for plays and music competitions, and uh, Northgate was a two-lane road, and uh, there, was, there was not a lot out here, so it's really fun to see how much the area has grown and how ideally located y'all are uh, for proclaiming the gospel um, it's, a good, it's good to be with you this morning. I work for RUF. RUF is the campus ministry wing of our denomination, and uh, we are not parachurch. We are the church on campus in a lot of ways, and so that means that it is not my ministry, but it is your ministry. As members, if you've been here for your whole life or if this is your first time, your affiliation with Forest Gate means that even if you've never heard of RUF before, you're involved, <laughs> that you are participating in what God is doing on college campuses. Our, our job, if you know Jeff Kreisel or me or any other campus ministers, is to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve. That is, go to where they are, studying, living life, befriend them, get to know them, and Lord willing, through the Spirit, open up doors to uh, evangelize and disciple students. Uh, last week I had a burrito with a student who has never been involved in any sort of faith at all. Uh, and, but we've slowly been lifting every week since August, since I met him at the gym. He loves weightlifting. And so he and I finally, I've been trying to get him to meet with me. We finally got a burrito and talked about powerlifting. Uh, and I'm praying that the Lord would open opportunity to present, what is it when Paul says, bodily training is of some good, but there's a better way to be a human being. And so, uh, or there's more to being a human being. So, and then we're also equipping students. Uh, we gather with students right now. This is our first year, so we're still small. But every week, to, we've been studying Ephesians the last, uh, the last this semester, looking at how God has been gracious and active towards us and how we respond. It's been really fun to think about this together with students. If you're curious about what we do on campus, uh, I'd love to buy you a cup of coffee and hear why you're curious and share more about what the Lord is doing. Um, but this is not why we're here to hear about me. We're here to see what God has done in our lives and in our world. So if you would, turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I'll read our text in just a second. While you turn, I want you to picture a group of Christians, a group of people following the God. And this, this group of Christians has some things that are really exciting going on in their midst, right? Uh, they generally like to be together, right? They, they enjoy each other's company. Uh, they generally believe the same thing about God. They want to follow Jesus. They want to love him well. And yet this church, this group of Christians also has some real challenges going on in their midst, right? They have some problems with racial diversity. They have some problems with politics and how to interact with nationalism. They have problems to deal with dealing with greed and selfishness, right? They can tend to treat their faith of, how can, what can I get out of this? What's in this for me, right? 
How can this make my life easier? They can tend to struggle with welcoming others to being a gracious community, right? And so they've got some internal problems, but they also have external problems where slowly the temperature around them, their social cultural temperature is starting to rise. And slowly but surely it's becoming more and more dangerous, more of a liability to be a Christian, right? As the culture around them gets more and more hostile, even to the point of persecution, right? You might think, and maybe in many ways I am, describing what it feels like to be a Christian today. That what I'm describing is could be, if I know anything about churches, Forest Gate, Presbyterian Church. There's some strong things going on and there's some hard things going on, internally and externally. The good news is that I'm actually describing the church that's just forming in Acts chapter 2. And that means that what has actually been happening in Forest Gate, in Colorado Springs, has been happening to and with the people of God since the beginning since the formation of the church. And so the questions that you are encountering as a church and as a couple and as a family and as a single person are questions that God's people have been questioning and encountering since the beginning, which means that as we encounter God's words today, it meets us right where we are. And it tells us how a community should posture and position and behave in what it feels like to be a Christian in 2023. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 2, and we are going to look at verse 42 through verse 47. This is God's word. And they, this is the new Christians, and I'll get into this in a minute, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to breaking the bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Lord in heaven, we have gathered we have confessed our sin, we have received your assurance, we have given, we have prayed, and now we come to the part of our worship for you where we sit at your feet. And so we pray now that you would send your spirit to do what only he can do, which is to take very old words and make them relevant and sweet to our hearts again. We pray that Jesus would be on full display and that we would go out of these doors somehow more equipped to know and love you and to serve and love our neighbor. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so what our passage shows us today, if there's one thing that you come out of these doors knowing is that the struggles that we endure, the trials that we endure today, in all of them, God shows his faithfulness to his church through the means of grace. God shows his faithfulness to his church through the means of grace. And so I'll try to unpack what this means as we unpack what, is, what are these means of grace. And so namely, we'll see that the means of grace equip us for community and witness. And so we'll look at this in three ways. One, what are the means of grace? What are they? Two, what are the results? And three, what do they show us? So what are the means of grace? What are their results and who and what do they show us? And so if you re recap, look up just a little bit, we'll look at what are the means of grace. Just a little before we dive in, the church has just experienced explosive and meteoric growth, right? 
If you remember just from last week, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's appeared to the apostles and to many others. He has showed himself not just as a great teacher, as a faithful friend, but as God himself who has died and risen from the dead to atone for sins and has started a new community of people who attest and testify to what he has done, right? And uh, as he does this, one of the apostles, Peter, goes and, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him in a mighty way and he proclaims the resurrection in a power and a, in a presence that, that is just captivating, arrests people who are, who are watching. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit descends on this crowd in an unbelievable way. And our text tells us that 3,000 people become, a Christ, become Christians. This is revival. This is renewal on a way that, that, that does not happen often, right? And so now we get a snapshot of what is going on. What, is, what are these new Christians doing? How are they behaving now that they are following the risen and reigning Christ, right? And it tells us, it doesn't beat around the bush. It tells us what they do, and it sets in so doing the blueprint of what the Christian life is to be, Right? And it tells us here, they, these 3,000 new converts, these 3,000 new followers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the first thing that they say, and these begin to unpack for us what are these things that we have called for a long time the means of grace. And we'll, we'll, we'll see what these are as we study what they are. And so the first thing they do is they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the, this means that they sat under or they sat with what the apostles came to tell them, right? They came to see what the apostles were doing. They realized, hey, if we're going to understand more about what we've just signed up for, we need to sit under the feet of those who have seen it, right? And this tells us that they are, in some ways, receiving nourishment, receiving food from the apostles, right? Think of it this way. The means of grace are the spiritual food that a Christian needs to live a healthy life. It's the spiritual food. A couple of weeks ago, I watched a YouTube video about a power lifter. Again, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm not a weightlifter, clearly, but I'm trying, there's this, there's this student who I'm trying to befriend, and so I was watching a video about this guy named Brian Shaw, who is a, an incredible athlete, right? He can deadlift over 1,000 pounds. He can bench press 600 pounds. It's just absurd strength, but in his day, he tells us when he's really trying to lift heavy what his daily calorie needs are, how much he eats, right? And on a day-to-day -day basis, the man eats 10,000 calories a day, 10,000 calories. And so he, he, he goes through what he has to eat to be able to compete on this level, right? And I was sitting on this thinking, I was like, man, if he's going to be able to do this, if he's going to deadlift 1,000 pounds, he's got to fuel his body right. He's got to be able to eat on, the way, on a way, on a level that can actually fuel his body. And then I was like, wait a minute. That's what, that's what the means of grace are. They're the nourishment, the food, fuel, the food that we need to be able to live a faithful and effective Christian life, right? If I'm going to compete, if I'm going to be strong spiritually, I have to eat, I have to consume the things that are going to fuel and equip my body. And the same is true for our souls, for our bodies. And so this is what these new Christians do. They devote themselves to the means of grace. They devote themselves to the means of grace, which is the first one it tells us, the apostles' teaching. Well, what does this mean? The apostles were the official delegated witnesses to what Jesus had done. 
And they only were the people who had seen Christ raised from the dead. And so they saw it and they interpreted it. They said, we saw Jesus die on a cross and we saw him come back to life. And not only did we witness these facts, but we're the ones who tell you what it means. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are witnesses. I delivered unto you what is of first most importance, that Christ died for our, our sins and rose again, that he died to de deliver us from our sins and that he rose again. This is the apostles' role. They are witnesses and interpreters of Jesus Christ. And so only they could do it. They were unique roles in the life of the church. And so the, the, these new Christians say, we wanna learn everything from you. If there is a 10,000 calorie version of what you're teaching, I want in. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, if you're a perceptive listener, you sit back and say, wait a minute, if the apostles are a one-time thing, I don't have access, I, I, how do I do that? What do I do, right? Well, we, in a many beautiful ways, in every beautiful way, we do in this. We have access to maybe not the apostles, but to their witness, to what they have written down to say, this is our testimony. This is the witness account of Jesus Christ risen and reigning and what it means for you. And so if we are to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, we are to be people who devote ourselves to Scripture, to the Bible. And so this means that Scripture is a means of grace. It is the nourishment, it is the way that God feeds and equips us to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ, right? First Peter 1 tells us that it is through the word of God, through the gospel, that we are born again. Put in different words, it says this, that, that it is the Bible that shows us Jesus Christ. It is the scripture that shows us Jesus Christ. And, and so it is a pinnacle, it is the high point of grace towards us, right? And so perhaps you're here and you're today and you're searching spiritually. Maybe you've been in the church your whole life. And you're sort of wondering, I don't know what this means anymore. Or maybe you're here for the first time and you don't know why you're here. And you're saying, what is this all about? What is this church thing? Why are we singing? Why are we studying? Why am I waking up early on a Sunday morning? To you, I would say that the Bible is the best way to acquaint yourself, to study, to discern what is this about? Because it shows us who Jesus is what he meant to the human story, what God is doing in your life and in the life of those around you, next to you, right? One of my dear old mentors was a, a master gardener who owned a, a wholesale plant nursery. He's, well, he's passed away. His family still owns it up on Black Forest and Woodman, and I worked for years for this, uh, this plant nursery for 14 years. And, and one of the treats of it was getting to sit at his feet because this man had been a horticulturalist, had been studying how to make plants grow for 30, 40 years, right? And so he had been formed into a person who knows the unique ways of growing plants in Colorado Springs at 7,000 feet with harsh winters and hot days and cold nights. He had been formed into the kind of person who knew what it meant to grow plants, and he was very good at it. And as I sat in this, he was a dear Christian man, and he often paralleled growing plants with growing in the faith, and he says, we must be formed in a way that not just how to grow plants, but formed into people who know how to apply horticulture 
to our trade. And then he would say, apply scripture to what it means to being a person, to what it means to being a man, a woman, an employee. And the same is true for Christians. We must not just learn the data of horticultural or the data about the Bible. What we, you know, it's easy to know the story of David and Goliath, but to know what it means for our lives, for our marriages, for our faiths, right? where we form communities and individuals that observe and interpret life through scripture. What does this mean for us? It means that we must be people who are devoted to scripture. And I know this feels obvious. I know this feels like, well, of course, we're in a Christian church for heaven's sake. But if I may be honest for a moment, perhaps this is one of the hardest things for us to do in 2023 that it is so challenging to be people who are devoted to scripture. Because I find that often the number one thing that seeks to distract me from being devoted to scripture is this, right? I know this is true for college students. The moment that I sit down to read scripture, I feel a buzz in my pocket and I pull it out and then I find myself in some wormhole, right? And I know that I'm not the only one that our world seeks in so many ways, rightly or wrongly, to distract us from spending time, from getting the calories that we need emotionally and spiritually. And if I'm honest, perhaps the number one thing that does this is technology, right? If you're anything like me, you, I try to read my Bible in the morning. I get up, I'm groggy, my brain is not fully firing yet. It's so much easier to do a devotional on my phone than a devotional in my Bible. It's so much easier to just spend time reading the news, to spend time on social media, to spend time looking at nothing than to open up this book and to spend time in that. I'm not anti-technology, but I will say this, that often technology is the biggest threat to my time in scripture, that I am so much more prone to devote my time to my phone than I am to God's word. And so I ask you, as I ask myself, what do I devote my time to? What do I devote my energy, my mental and emotional and spiritual time to? Faithful Christian formation is devotion to scripture, to what the apostles have said. And if that's something where you say, I don't know how to do that. My goodness, Pastor Matt, Pastor Stephen would love nothing more than to sit down with you and explore how can you grow in how to study and know God's word, to feed and form yourself in that. But this is not the only thing that, the, that these new Christians devoted themselves to, although it may be the most important. It tells us here that they devoted themselves to the, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And this one is such a sweet relief to me. Because if there's one thing that says, oh gosh, I have to spend more time in my Bible, more time studying, this one is just a sweet relief of spending time with other people. Of spending time in fellowship with people who are like me, sinners who know they're messed up, are learning more about how messed up they are and want to grow together, right? This is, this is time of deep formation together as a community, but it's also simple time as a potluck or simple time as having you know, friends over for dinner and talking about life and faith and family and work. If, the, if the, the, this is not just being walled off from each other socially, this is not just showing up on Sunday morning and leaving. This is time spent together encouraging, forming maybe at times convicting, but just being together. Humans are social animals. We are formed by the people that we hang out with. This is, I mean, especially true in college, right? This is sort of what we attempt to do in college is to form a community around the academic life. 
so that as you are formed and as you spend time with people who are kinesiology majors, you become a kinesiologist. As you spend time with computer engineers, you become a computer engineer. The same is true for us as Christians, right? That, it, that as we spend time to ch- together, together, we are formed as Christians. Most recently, before I was a campus pastor here in the Springs, I was at New Mexico State University in Las Cruces, New Mexico. So if you take Interstate 25 all the way south till it ends, you could throw a rock and hit my old house. And it was really, really, a, it, was a, it was a great place to be a pastor, but it was a brutal place to try and grow plants because it's in southern New Mexico and nothing grows in southern New Mexico, right? And so I remember having, feeling all this social pressure to grow grass in my front yard. But grass is not native to southern New Mexico. It's not meant to grow there. It's a litter box. It's a sand, it's, it looks like they shoot movies in Afghanistan in southern New Mexico because it looks like Afghanistan. And so I remember trying to feel like I had to grow grass. And I learned over the years that I was there, the only way you can grow grass in southern New Mexico is if you have other grass around it because it's just too hot and too dry. And that if, if, you know, if there's just a little tuft of grass out by itself, it will burn and die when it's 105 and 5% humidity. It does not stand a chance. But if you can have other grass around it, it can begin to form its own shade and it can begin to hold in moisture. And friends, being a Christian is the exact same way. In 2023, there is no Christian life in isolation. It's too hard out there. If I may put it in maybe more charged language, the climate has changed in being a Christian in 2023. We cannot do it alone. We must have other Christians around us to encourage, to nourish, to form us. And this is a means of grace because it is undeserved favor that God gives us one another to sit in how much God loves us. Here's the reality, and I'll be bold to say this, that perhaps if you are finding yourself anxious or depressed or angry or acting out compulsively, in some sort of way, sexual addiction, substance addiction, I would bet that you are experiencing some kind of deep or social loneliness. There's a a, a peer counseling group called Celebrate Recovery and they say something very insightful. They say, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, but connection. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety, but connection. And as I've sat in that, the more real I have found that to be. That as we connect with other people, that's the moment that we begin to experience freedom, joy, hope in the things that, the the vices and compulsive things that we find ourselves to doing. So the number one reason that you may be fighting sin right now is not lack of willpower. It's not that you don't hate your sin enough, but that you're alone. You're feeling hung out to dry. You feel like you're the only one fighting this battle. And to you, our text would say, Find fellowship. Devote yourselves to a body of people. Don't be grass out there in the hot desert sun by yourself. But integrate into a community that will encourage you, that will nourish you, that will point you to Jesus, that will pray with you. And if this is touching a nerve from you, if you're a Christian or not, I would love to connect with you. But more importantly, I would love to connect you with Stephen or Matt. I'm here and then I'm gone. I care for college students. They will be here to care with you for the long term. Second, how are you helping to, to cultivate this sort of community for those inside and out of this church? This is an opportunity for us to be the person that the person next to you needs, the fellowship that you need, right? And so here we see that these are not just things that we have to do to be Christians. 
And we'll study this in a second, but these are graces that God gives us to be formed into who God created us to be, Christians who know and love and serve their God and Savior, right? Then it moves on. It says, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And this might just mean they were eating together, that they had fellowship meals together. But I won't go into all the details, but most scholars separate receiving food in verse 46 with this one, and, and, and then if you look at the way that this figure of speech works with how Luke often writes, he probably means the Eucharist. He probably means communion, the sacrament. They devoted themselves to communion, right? And this is a phrase which shows us that they observed communion regularly, right? Well, what is communion? Communion is a grace that God gives us, which the Holy Spirit takes very simple things like bread and wine, and, the, and it tells us that he, the Spirit uses simple things to nourish our soul. And just as bread and wine nourish our bodies, analogously, in the same way, the Spirit uses Christ's body and blood to form us, to unite us, to connect us more to Christ through communion. I tell students, this is a great mystery. This is what the word sacrament means. It means mystery. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, I don't know how this works, but when we take communion, we are mysteriously more connected to Jesus than we when we walked into this building because of the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit. That's grace. That is grace of God somehow mysteriously connecting you to Christ more through breaking of bread, through fellowship, and so we see in the supper God's love displayed to us. We see Jesus' body broken just as we tear bread apart. We see blood spilt just as we see a cup. Undeserved, that's what grace is, undeserved favor. Christ torn apart so that we would not be. Christ bleeding so that we would live. Next, they devoted themselves to prayer. And that we could do a whole sermon on prayer, but for the sake of time, I'll, I'll go through it quickly. Prayer is, we, is God talking to us and us talking to God and being formed by that experience. That the Psalms show us that prayer is us being radically vulnerable to God, saying, God, I'm frustrated with you. God, I don't know what you're doing in my life, but I will praise you. And that it is a grace that God gives us the freedom and words to, to say to God and to be formed by them. They devoted themselves to worship, verse 46 and 47, day by day, attending the temple together, verse 47, praising God and having favor in their hearts. And so here they are going to the temple in their houses, praising God. This is singing. This is praying together. This is sitting under the, uh, the apostles' teaching that worship was a priority for them. And worship is a key way that God shows us his love, is a way that God shows us how much he cares for us, right? And so what's the takeaway from all of this? The takeaway is that the means of grace are the major way that you experience God's love. The means of grace are the main way that you experience God's love. Many times throughout a semester, a college student will come to me and say, Jonathan, I just feel like God is a long ways away. I feel like I just can't sense God in my life. I don't know where he is. I don't know what he's doing. Maybe that's you today. And I say, well, When's the last time you were in church? When's, when, when was, when have you, when's the last time you've tried to read your Bible? When's the last time you've prayed? And they say, well, it's been a while. And I say, all right, let's do a thought experiment here. 
let's say you're, in a, you're, you're dating, you're in a romantic relationship, and your significant other moves to, I don't know, Detroit. And you, I don't know, why did you ever move there? But, you know, they move away. And you, you don't text them. You don't write letters. You have minimal contact. Maybe you, you call them once every two or three months. You don't make any attempt to, to visit them or anything like that. Do you think that relationship is going to grow? Do you think that relationship is going to have any sort of life or vitality? Of course not. Absolutely not. And I say the same is true with our relationship with the Lord. How in the world can we expect ourselves to know and experience God's love if we aren't putting ourselves in the position to receive them? And that's what the maidens of grace are, is putting ourselves in the position to be loved by God. If I'm not going to eat right, I'm not going to be able to train right. If I don't put myself in the position to receive love, I'm not going to feel loved, right? And so that's what the means of grace are. They're putting ourselves in the position to receive how much God loves us. And as we do this, there are two major results that the text tells us can happen or do happen. So the first is, what are the means of grace? It's our longest one. The next ones are shorter. And there's two major results. One is radical generosity, and the second is effective witness. So first is radical generosity, verse 44, as they do this. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So here is a young fellowship of community of believers that as they're sitting in God's fellowship, as they're sitting under the means of grace, they're transformed. They become a new community and they become one that has radical generosity, right? Giving away their private property so that they can just, I mean, just giving things away generously, right? And why? Because it's, it's, this is grace. What is grace? It's undeserved favor. It's undeserved love. It's undeserved gifts. And so what's happening here is as they are sitting in God's undeserved favor towards them, they are responding in undeserved favor and generosity towards those who are around them. As they study God's radical grace to them, they become radically gracious to others. And this is so important, so pay attention here. Grace, generous grace causes gracious generosity. Gracious ge grace causes gracious generosity. And this is our theme. It must because our, be our theme of the Christian faith because if it isn't, then the means of grace become legalism. They become another thing that you have to do in your week, right? And this is so important. The church has often missed this crucial point. I have a background in philosophy. I studied a lot of philosophy. And one of the philosophers that I did a lot of work on is a guy named Immanuel Kant, a super influential philosopher in the early 1700s. His mother was a German pietist. And if you know anything about German pietism, they loved the means of grace. They would throw themselves into them, right? And so uh, all about personal piety, all about personal holiness. And uh, this, was, this was so important to them. The means of grace were really important. But for Immanuel Kant, they never really connected to him. He never really got that these were means of grace. For him, they felt like moralistic duties that he had to do. Things that he had to do to be a good person, right? And so that's often how he was, that's how he was formed as a philosopher, is he had a high moral sense, a high personal sense of this is what a person must do. 
but they were completely detached from the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in many ways, Western philosophy is a footnote to that. But Kant never felt, never experienced the grace that is the undeserved gift of God through Jesus Christ in the means of grace. And so he became a highly moralistic legalist. And that is not what the means of grace are about. If there's one thing you hear me say, that the means of grace are not another thing that you have to put onto your already too long checklist. The means of grace are things that you get to do to show you how much God cares for you. If you come away from this feeling like prayer, scripture, church are a burden, feels like things that you have to do, then please come talk to me. Come talk with Stephen or Matt. We'd love to listen and connect and explore where that disconnect is happening. Gracious, generous grace causes gracious generosity. And when you sit in a free gift, you start to give freely. And that's the diagnostic for us. Do we do these things? Do we give freely because I feel like I have to or because I see a savior who has already given to me? And so they gave in radical generosity. They gave in radical generosity, right? And so this is the response. Do I see my heart in the same sort of radical generosity to the people next to me? Sometimes it's money. Some, for some of you, it's easy to write the big check. But it's very hard for you to spend any sort of quality time with another person. Some of you, you'll spend as much time with a person as you can possibly give, but it's hard to write the check. God's grace calls us to be generous in all of our possessions. Why? Because he was gracious with his greatest possession, his life. He did not consider equality with a God a thing to be grasped, be held onto, but freely gave it up, became a servant to us all. What does this look like? It means that we are called to sell our possessions, the things that we hold dearly, so that we can give freely to others out of response to what God has freely given to us. The second effect of this is, sorry, the second result of this is effective witness. Verse 47, the second part. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. People who come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ want to share it. When you understand how much God loves you, you can't help but desire to share it with someone else, right? When you discover something you love, you want to bring other people into this. We all experience this on a day-to-day -day level. Think of a restaurant. Maybe in the last year you've been to a restaurant in Colorado Springs that just, just hit right where you wanted it to hit. Maybe it was the food. Maybe it was the atmosphere. What do you do when you find that? You tell your friends. You say, hey, we went to this restaurant. It was great. We'd love to take you. Or if you see a movie that was really great, what do you do? You say, hey, we saw this movie. It was amazing. You've got to watch it. Or an album or a song. When we find something that we love, we want to share it. We want to tell others about it. We want to spread the good news of this restaurant, of this movie. Well, friends, think about what the gospel is. The gospel is the best news that our world has ever heard. It's the best news of a God who became man, who came to deliver us out of oppression and sin and darkness, to save you from your worst impulses, to deliver you out of oppression. And when you marinate in that means of grace, of God's love towards you, in Christ for you, you want to share it with other people. 
And so this is no longer a, oh, I have to share my faith. Oh, I got to go talk to my neighbor next door. It's look what God has done for me. Look what sweet mercy he's done towards me. I'd love to get my neighbors in on this. I'd love to get my coworkers in on this. I'd love to get my classmates in on what God has done. Do you see that? When you marinate in God's grace, you want to connect others in. You want to deepen others into that. And notice here that it does not say that they did it. It says the Lord added to their number. So even at the end of the day, it's God's work. Even at the end of the day, it's not up to us, but it is as we sit in God's grace towards us, the Lord uses us mysteriously. I don't know how this works to bring others in. If radical generosity and effective witness, these are the fruit of grace. They're the gifts of God, right? It's no secret that we are living in a time that sociologists and theologians are calling post-Christian. We're living in a time where being a Christian is going to start feeling more challenging. There's no doubt about that, right? It's an inc- we are, as Christians, an increasingly political and social minority. And it's true on a college campus. It's true in your workplace. There's a man named Stefan Pass. He's a Dutch theologian of missions. And he writes that this is a unique challenge for Christians. And he says, what we must do is we must return to the means of grace. He says it so effectively. He says this. He writes, the Sunday morning event with its means of grace of word, prayer, sacrament, Christ continually creates a community. And that community has a missional identity. And missions happen when the means of grace happen. Generosity happens when the means of grace happen. Joy happens. Peace happens. Love happens when the means of grace happen. Why? Because the means of grace point us to Christ. He is the final and greatest grace to you and to your family and to your marriage and to your singleness to your career, all of every part of your life, it's Christ. So the means of grace are not another set of tasks that you must do. They are Christ for you, Christ in front of you, Christ in you, Christ filling you. That is what our world needs. That is what your day needs. Not another checklist of things to do, but a savior who has done everything necessary for you to feel loved, for you to be loved, for you to feel accepted, for you to be accepted. The means of grace are the roadmap which shows us the destination, which is Christ. They're the photo albums of the redemptive person and presence of Jesus Christ. They're the love letters of a devoted savior to you. So if you pray out of here saying, oh, I gotta read my Bible more. If you walk out of here saying, I gotta pray more. That's not the point. The point is, Christ loves you. Sit in that love as a community. I get to, I must for the sake of my soul, my family, spend time with my Savior. And friends, as we do that as a community, as individuals, as family, as a church, God has promised that the Lord will use these things to nourish and equip us as individuals, to nourish and equip us as churches to be faithful witnesses. And so my prayer is that you as individuals and you as a church would soak in these means of grace, that they would be sweet to you, that you would see Jesus in all of his prismatic, gorgeous beauty for you, his love for you, and that you would be radically generous towards those next to you and that you would be effective witnesses for his kingdom and for his glory. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven,
Thank you for your myriad grace towards us, that though we were sinners, though we were hostile to you, you have welcomed us into the inheritance of your kingdom, that the light has pierced the darkness in our hearts, and that you continue to show us this. We pray, Lord, that these things that you've given us, these acts of prayer, of scripture, of singing, of communion, would not become things that we must do or feel compelled to do, but they would be sweet nourishment that equip us to first and foremost see how much you love us, that your spirit would give us strength with all the saints to comprehend the love of God, which transcends our understanding. And then as a result, we would be radically loving and generous towards the people next to us. And we would be effective witnesses for your glory and for your kingdom. Will you be glorified through us? You're the main character of history. Would you be our good and gracious king and we will be your faithful people. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.